0: Today I'm going to be taking a break from 1 Corinthians, and don't worry, we're going to jump right back in next week. Uh, but the reason I'm taking a break is for the purpose of doing what I'm going to refer to as a spiritual. Kind of like when you go to the doctor and you get a physical, but what we're doing is we're taking a, a spiritual today. And, um, and, and evaluating not only us individually, but also evaluating where are we as a church body. A couple of weeks ago, I had somebody who was talking to me. They said to me that they were listening to previous sermons of mine online. And they were, going, they were going back in time. And they made it to the New Year's sermon. And does anybody remember the New Year's sermon for this year? Maybe. I don't know. Quiz time. I, I didn't remember. Um, <clears throat> until they said, you remember the name? You remember what it was called? And I'm like, oh, no. And they said, no more masks. That was the title of the sermon. How ironic, right? But, but we know, hopefully you remember the, The idea of that sermon, at least. That sermon was actually a sermon encouraging us and challenging us as we go into 2020 that we would be a church that practices continual Christ centered discipline. And discipline, not talking about the excommunication, but talking about exhorting and encouraging and challenging. But the only way that we can really do that with one another is if we're honest, if we're taking off the masks. Because we have this propensity as human beings, in a spiritual sense, to hide ourselves, to self-protect, to to make ourselves look better than what we really are. And so the call was no more masks. And then we enter into March and we don't see each other uh, for a while. But I think that that time period and this time period that we're even currently in, uh, God has ordained this. And that God has intentions for this. Lessons even for us to learn. That while we entered into this new year calling for no more masks, I think that's God's call to us still. And God is using this to bring that about. You know, in James, in chapter 1, when James talks about falling into trials of various kinds, you know, he starts off, count it all joy when you fall into trials of various kinds. Why? Why? Because he goes on and he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I, I just want to break that down briefly as we enter into this spiritual today. Okay? The testing of your faith. When we fall into trials of various kinds, which I think we could probably say we've experienced various sorts of trials over the last few months. Would you agree? Yeah? Okay. So if we've fallen into various types of trials over the last few months, what is God's intention in the midst of those trials? He he shows us first that those trials are actually, let's view them as the testing of our faith. Now, that phrase, testing of faith, is not saying God is testing you like we have tests at school. You know, am I going to get an A? Am I going to get a C? Am I going to get an F? Oh, no. I hope I don't get an F. God's going to be really disappointed. But instead, the testing of the faith is talking about our dependence on the Lord, that he's revealing to us even our recognition of our dependence on him. That in the midst of the trial, do we cling to him or do we cling to other things? Or do we cling to that mask and the perceptions that we want to hold to? Or do we depend on him? Now, the testing of the faith as the faith is intended to the dependence is intended to actually increase, meaning we're going to cling to the Lord more. As we cling to the Lord more, then it says that this produces steadfastness and its full effect is going to be that we would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the phrase perfect and complete, when you put that together in the Greek, actually, if we wanted to give like a modern translation to this, we could say it refers to wholeness. A spiritual wholeness. God's design and goal for his we could bring is that we would be whole. That Jesus was broken so we could be one. And it says lacking in nothing. So these last couple of months, we've been going through trials of various kinds. And my question to you is, do you feel more spiritually whole as a result of these months? Are you closer to the Lord in the word and prayer through these trials? Does your behavior towards people reveal that? What about your love for the world around you and your burden to evangelize? How about your love for fellow believers? Has your clinging to God increased? Or have you drifted or remained the same or wandered away? See, this is a concern, actually, that the elders have currently. Most of our elders at our last elders meeting described and explained that they were burdened and discouraged right now. All all but one elder. He actually said he was feeling pretty good. And we said, then you're our encourager right now. But the reality is, is that there are people... That in the midst of this time, or as a result of this time, people who have been going back to old sins, people whose hearts have been revealed in concerning ways, there are others who are feeling confused with how to act and to respond to various situations that they're facing. In addition, social media adds just this crazy mix to our lives that can be good, but it can also be very bad. In addition, the elders have perceived um, at least the beginning of potentials of divisive tendencies within our church family that's different than in previous years that we've experienced. And so rather than ignore these perceptions and trying to just like plant little seeds in sermons here and there and have you go, wait, what is he way?" Huh? Is this like a veiled way of saying something? We just said, let's just bring it out into the open. Let's talk about this and let's, let's have a spiritual together and say, where are we? Now, for some of you, you might be like, I have no idea what you're talking about, Pastor Timothy. Praise the Lord for how he's working in you. Awesome, amazing. Listen to this sermon with the intent of continuing to grow in your faith. For others of you, there might be some things that God brings about a conviction with and, and there others might even be more. But for all of us, we're in this together. Just like what the, the fighter passage says, let us continue together. Let us not grow weary in doing well. So we're in this together together. And as I say all of this, this kind of reminds me of the New Testament and and the authors, the apostles who write the New Testament to these churches. All the churches experience different types of trials. And one of the things that's pressed in, I think, every or most New Testament letter is the idea of like-mindedness unity every every church has their unique challenges that they're facing you know Ventura in 2020 faces different challenges than Ventura 1960 right so like-mindedness is going to be practiced and expressed in different ways because of the things that we're facing it's all based on the same principles of Christ but it's different in how we express it. So for us, we go through these trials and we're like, how in the world do I love you? And, and what is going on? So as you have that little bit of a backdrop, I want to give you the big idea of the sermon today. Ventura must be like-minded for God's glory, our good, and the world's repentance. This is what we're going to be using to evaluate even where we're at and to challenge us and encourage us to grow. Ventura must be like-minded for God's glory, our good, and the world's repentance. Now, before we go into each of those points, you can ask, what does like-minded mean? Does it mean that every Christian agrees on every belief? I mean, for the last several weeks at the end of the service, the benediction has been from 2 Corinthians 13 that says, agree with one another, live at peace. It can almost sound like he's saying, we have to agree on everything. Then you get to Philippians 2. And Philippians 2 says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. And what about Romans twelve sixteen that says, live in harmony with one another. Or when Paul writes in Philippians that Euodia and Syntyche must agree together in the Lord. All of these phrases have similar meanings. But does it mean that we have to agree on everything? Does it? Do you think? No, it does not mean that we agree on everything, but it means that we are unified because we agree on the main realities, okay? Which are founded in Jesus Christ, who has become for us wisdom from God. So I'm going to give you my definition of what I think like-mindedness is, using New Testament. I believe like-mindedness is, and and I want you to add, don't start with counting. If you already took notes, you're going to have to scribble. Like-mindedness is expressed in counting others as more significant than oneself because of the God-given union we have in Christ. It's expressed in counting others as more significant than ourselves, but it's grounded in, it's because of the God-given union we have in Jesus. Now, why do I put in here, it's expressed in counting others as more significant? Well, that's because if you go to Philippians 2, and Paul is talking about having the same mind, he says, then do nothing From selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, don't just think about you, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to display the mind of Christ, that Jesus in All glory, sacrificed the glory of heaven and came to the cesspool of this world. And he loved and lived with people and served people. And even in Jesus' sacrifice, it is as though Jesus treated people as if they were more significant than him. And are human beings more significant than Jesus? No, no. Jesus is the glorious one. And he sacrificed on sinners' behalf, rebels, so that rebels could be made one with God, be reconciled with God. Jesus experienced the death that we deserved. And when I say the death that we deserve, I'm not just talking about being put in a coffin. I'm saying Jesus experienced the true everlasting death Of the wrath of God on the cross for myriads and myriads of sinners, for you and for me, those of us who have faith in Him. And when Jesus was on the cross, He didn't. When Jesus was on the cross, He said, "Father, forgive them." Have you ever wondered yourself if, if you were in that position, and you were innocent? and you were right, and everybody else is wrong. Have you ever thought about what you would say on the cross? I know what I would say. I would say, Father, go get them. I mean, something like that. Because how dare they? They're misrepresenting me. They're doing all this against me. And they are wrong, and they need to know it. And yet Jesus says, forgive them. And so then the New Testament authors continue over and over again to tell us that is that is the mind that we must have towards one another who are believers and even towards the world around us this gift of that mind comes not just to me individually but to all of us together we are to be like-minded as a whole we as Christians have a same, the same message that we're surrounded around. and It's God's glory in Christ by the power of the Spirit. So with that, I want to get into that first point. Ventura must be like-minded for God's glory. Now, like-mindedness is not simply God wishing that we would be like-minded or saying, hey, it would be a really good idea if you guys as a church would be like-minded. But, you know, if you're not like-minded, then, you know, Whatever. Like-mindedness and unity around the gospel of Jesus is commanded by God, and it is essential in displaying the magnificence of his glory. Why why is like-mindedness essential to display his glory? I just want you to think back to the beginning when God created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, question for you, did God Uh, did God create things because he needed something from creation was God bored was God needy is he oh you know I'd really like to talk to some other people you know so I'll make them boom no God has no needs God is completely satisfied within him his triune self And yet he creates this world. So why does he create the world if he has no needs? He creates this world and he creates the creatures in this world so that they might be able to have eternal joy in him. I mean, even in creation, God is sacrificing, giving of himself to others and other beings. And within this creation, of course, God gives Adam and Eve... And Adam and Eve are given a mandate to follow and worship him and to protect the garden. But they fail in that mandate. They let the serpent come in and the serpent to deceive. They're supposed to be one. And yet, are they one in that moment? Well, they're one in sinning. And then as a result of the sin, there's division. We get that in the curse. There's a division between the man and the woman. And then they have a child, and then they have another child, and then their son kills their other son. And then you go down in history, in Genesis, and you find problems after problems. You get to the man named Lamech who says, my vengeance is going to be worse than God's vengeance. And you go to the days of Noah, the thoughts and the intents of the heart are only evil continuously. And the people are splintered. Tower of Babel, splintered. Then God brings together this nation of Israel and he calls them his people and they are to together glorify God as a nation so that the nations of the world might see a difference because through them the the nations are going to be blessed and yet we read in Israel after God tells them over and over again it's because I've rescued you live this way I've rescued you live this way that what happens in Israel I'm reading in the Kings right now and even Solomon's reign 40 years of peace His reign of peace came at the cost of disobedience to God. And I'm going to say, even from the beginning. Because in Deuteronomy 17, it says, Don't accumulate for yourself horses. Don't accumulate for yourself wives. Don't accumulate for yourself wealth. Oh my. Don't we see that with Solomon? And so eventually, God splits the kingdoms, the people are divided. And over and over again, you have this division, division, division. And you're left longing for a king that is going to unite. A kingdom that is going to be one. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus enters onto the scene, not like any other king, right? He comes in as a baby, humble, and he's not accumulating things for himself, but instead he is serving people. And he is the one that is, that is healing people. Even people who will reject him, he'll heal them. And he'll preach to them. And he'll declare to them the glory of God. And then of course, Jesus goes all the way to death to take the punishment that sinners deserve in our place and rises from the dead. And he is the king, amen? And he calls anyone who would turn from their sins and turn to Jesus would be a part of the King's kingdom. And now we are one. One kingdom, united under our one Savior. Before Jesus himself even died, in John 17, Jesus prays this The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. He has given glory. To be expressed in the unity. This glory leads to the unity of Jesus' people. So, question for you. Do you care about God's glory? Yes. Wait, hold on. Let's try that again. Do you care about God's glory? Yes. Okay, good. Well, now we're going to test that. This past week, uh, Cody uh, shared with me a quote from a Puritan. Was it Richard Baxter? Yeah, Richard Baxter. He, he said... That many Christians suffer from spiritual bulimia. Meaning they take in a lot of information and they refuse to digest it. We don't, we won't meditate on it. We'll hear it, you know, we'll get it kind of in our mind and then we forget about it. I think that can be the case when we talk about God's glory in the unity of his children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want God's glory. woo yeah. Now, be like-minded. <laughs> Whatever i 'm just going to move on and do what I 've normally done no Jesus prays to the Father that god 's glory would be expressed the triune God 's glory would be expressed through the unity of his children the like mindedness of his children now again that doesn't mean we agree on all things, but because we agree on God 's glory in Christ, we pursue that unity and seek to display to the world that kind of unity so The question is, is how are we doing as a church at that? How are we doing as a church as a result of the last few months? I want to go into the next point. Ventura must be like-minded for God's glory and our good. The beauty is that our good and God's glory go right together. God's glory is humanity's good. That's why he created the world so we would know his glory, which is our great joy. Now, I've already commented on other passages of Scripture that state that we need to be like-minded. So what I want to do under this point here is I want to take time kind of to do like what Paul did with the Corinthians in the passage I talked about last week where he says, And such were some of you. And the point in him saying, and such were some of you, is him saying, So that's not who you are in Christ, so we don't live like that anymore. We live like the people that we are in Christ, redeemed. Set free. So, and such were some of us, Ventura. But we are united in Christ. So what I want to do is I want to give some examples. Examples of maybe concern that some elders have expressed at this point in time. And then also some examples that might be helpful in moving forward to the future. So let me start by um, concern. I'm I'm a negative one. So that's where I go first. Currently... In all transparency, I, I don't personally like the model of how we have our services right now, okay? Um, now, that doesn't mean that I don't believe it's the wisest for right now, but I, I don't like it. And, it's, and I may not like it for a different reason than you don't like it. I don't like it because I feel like it can separate my brothers and sisters from one another over preferences. That we have made separation from one another over preferences instead of recognizing our union as people, and that that takes priority. People take priority. Um, I, I and I think other elders have had discussions with people over even the masks and no-mask perspective And it's so intriguing to me how quickly the discussion gets political or conspiracy discussion as to a defense as to why they ought not to wear masks. If the conversation, but I have had conversations that have gone to, but I do, somebody saying, I do recognize there are those who do need to wear masks. You know, there's the immunocompromised. They feel like they need to wear the mask. Or there's people who are concerned for those people, that they might be in their family. So I recognize that. And then at that point, my question is, so what's the solution? What's the solution at this point in time? And it has seemed to me that it has been, well, they can go to their own service, and then we can have ours. That just saddens me. Because people are more important than my preference and I think that we would all acknowledge that should be the case people should be more important than our preferences um, now I know some people will say well hold on a second pastor Timothy you know I mean they're wrong I'm right and so and they're wanting me to do this and I shouldn't have to do this thing over here because I don't want to do that thing over here and and they're being rude too and here's the thing I recognize this is all a mess And what, what another concern that I have is like the book of James, when James says, Hey, what, what's causing fights and quarrels among you? I mean, there, there were fights and quarrels among them. And it's like in that moment, the people were probably thinking, yeah, James, get to it. Tell us who's right and who's wrong. And James doesn't tell us who's right and who's wrong. Actually, he just says, you're all wrong. Isn't it not your own hearts? Isn't that the big problem? That you're defending you instead of really having a love for one another? I mean, the reality is, is if we are a church family and we we have sides, you know, I mean, of course, we're going to have perspectives. But if we create sides against each other, if, if one side loses, who really loses? Everybody does. Everybody loses if one side loses. It's been interesting. I've had some conversations with some people over the past few weeks that's led me to bring this verse into this sermon. Even a few days ago as I was working on the sermon, um, somebody mentioned it to me. And I'm like, man, okay, i got to put this in here because multiple people are mentioning it to me. And I think that this is encouraging to me as well. I think God is continuing to work in our midst to teach us in the midst of this time period. But here's the verse. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, If you call your brother Raka... You are in danger of what? Hellfire. Does Jesus ever lie? Do you think Jesus means what he says here? Yeah. And yet, I have a grave concern that people have been communicating in their words, in their online social media pages or whatever else. They've been communicating an attitude of they're an idiot, they're a fool. We are treating people as though their value is based in their positions as opposed to treating them that their value is based in their position in Christ. Wow, that's more important, their position in Christ. And even, even if someone's an unbeliever, James says, well, they're created in the image of God. And so how can we worship God and then, and then curse someone who's created in God's image? So what does this look like practically for us? What should we do if another shelter at home happens? And I know some people are like, revolt! I got my guns already. You know, no, 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 no. I'm talking about spiritually, okay? What should we do if another shelter at home happens? Or let's just say that doesn't happen. What, what should you do if you're infirmed for a period of time? I think one of the things that we've seen over the last few months is that uh, some people disengaged. They disengaged with other believers within the church body, and they're experiencing some of the negative effects of that. Because the scriptures say we are to exhort one another as long as it's called today. Often we use the phrase, we are disciple-making disciples. And sometimes I think what people tend to do is they say, okay, people are discipling me. And as soon as that's gone, well, I guess I'm just young. I don't know, nobody's reached out to me. As opposed to saying, no, no, you are to engage people. Make sure that they are growing in Christ. As long as it's called today, lest there be among you an evil, unbelieving heart. That can happen. So we must be engaging each other. That's one of the solutions here. Talk to each other. Sharpen each other. Secondly, sacrifice for each other. Some of the conversations I've had with people have basically boiled down to a response. And I can totally understand this because I'm just, I'm, I'm human and sinful. But the response is essentially, well, why do I have to be the one that sacrifices? Why do I have to be? And my response to that is, you don't have to, you get to. And I say you get to in genuineness because the Bible says God has set you free to magnify Jesus. And how does Jesus magnify God? It was through his sacrifice. So that's what we get to do. Sacrifice for one another. So engage with each other. Sacrifice. And then... I'm going to put a negative phrase in here. Don't slander. That sounds so simple. But you know, the Greek word for slanderer is diabolos, which is the same word for the devil. And I fear there's been a lot of slandering that's happened, which is not God's means of communication. If we want God's glory, we don't slander. We're careful with our words. We are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. James says we sin a lot with our words. So we're careful to not slander. But we do all of this, again, by way of reminder, because Jesus is central. A couple of Sunday nights ago, I had a conversation with one of our members, and she was telling me about a social community group that she's a part of, that she really enjoys. I think she attends this thing weekly or something, and then, and she's a part of this group, um, she was telling me how afterwards they can go somewhere else and they can talk about uh, politics, they can talk about uh, their religious perspectives, and they disagree. And yet, they have a, that doesn't affect their standing in this group. And I was like, right, because you know, your view on Jesus does not affect this central idea of this group. So you guys are still unified because you have this main unity. But the sad thing is, is that I think that what this person was trying to express to me too is that it doesn't feel like I, I can express differences within the church family here, even though we all are united around Christ. And I would say the world says we have a greater unity, than, or, or the Bible says we have a greater unity than what the world could ever have, right? Because Jesus is central. It doesn't mean that these other things don't matter, but what we tend to do is we tend to take our swords out and thrust through each other, with them, instead of taking the swords out and saying, can we sharpen? Can we sharpen each other? It's not just saying, you believe that, I believe that, let's not talk. No, engage each other. Sharpen each other. Learn from each other. Be humble. Count the other person as more significant than yourself. Why? Because Jesus. That's who Jesus is. So how's our spiritual going? Ventura must be like-minded for God's glory, for our good, and then finally, for the world's repentance. In John 17, Jesus also prays that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Paul, in 2 Timothy, when talking to Timothy writes this, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You know, I have never found one instance in the new Testament where Jesus or the apostles speak rudely. I'm gonna say, rudely and, and sinful towards Worldly leaders. He said, no, 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 Jesus, he went with whips in the temple. Who are those people? Religious leaders. To the religious leaders, there was firmness. To the religious leaders, there was even disobedience when they called them to disobey the Lord. But when you see interactions with the worldly governmental leaders, it's different. Paul says, correct your opponents with Gentleness gentleness about a month ago God hit me between the eyes while I was thinking about so many of the issues that are swirling around and a thought came to me I've been distracted I've been focusing on trying to answer the issues typing out things to people responding conversations stressed out and this thought came to me as I was sitting on my back deck during my Bible study time That Satan is happy as long as Jesus isn't central. He is happy. And what happened is that it's not that some of these things didn't matter or that they don't have effect, but Jesus just went over to the corner. And Jesus was not my aim and my goal anymore. My goal was, you got to know this. And I want them to know this. What in the world? Satan is happy as long as Jesus isn't central. So I had a conversation with another church member here. And this is one thing that I would encourage you with um, as well. When we talk about like-mindedness and unity, talk to people within the church that you're pretty sure would disagree with you. And don't just talk to them, but say, hey, I'm not trying. I actually don't want to argue. I want to listen. And if you'd be willing to hear my perspective too, I think that would be great. This is a good lesson. You could also talk to them even after the service today and just say, Pastor Timothy gave us this homework, so that's why I'm doing this, and I want you to know I love you. <laughs> but I'm this i I'm starting to do that with some people in our church And um, in the midst of this. And I had a conversation with one person that was, that was uh, quite passionate uh, about certain political things, which, again, we can be passionate about these things. But my concern was is that Jesus is being forgotten. And that this person was more passionate about the politics than they were about Jesus. And so I said to to them, if you were a missionary in another country, how would you talk? How would you talk if you were a missionary in another country? And so this person thought about it, and they actually responded. They said, you know what? They they saw they were more passionate about literally proclaiming their perspective, even talking to neighbors about their perspective, but they've never done that with Jesus. They realized, oh. Now, some of you could say, well, that's different. That's a missionary. It's in a different country. This is my home. But think about Peter with the dispersed believers in the Roman government, those people who are kicked out of their homes. And Peter says to them, does he say, Now fight to get your home back. Actually, he says to them, oh, no, no, no. You are exiles and sojourners. It's far better to let people know there's a greater homeland than to fight here. And we can be a display to the world. You say, whoa, that's just crazy. No, 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 no. We can't do that. But you know what? It was crazy for Jesus to die on the cross. That's not how you gain a following. God works in opposites. And so I'm genuinely concerned. I'm genuinely concerned, even in the midst of this time, at name-calling of people in the world, mocking people in the world. How is that evangelistic? How, does, how is that correcting an opponent with gentleness so that God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth that they might come to their senses? Listen, the reality is is that the people of this world are going to hell for eternity if they don't know Jesus. That's what's on the line. Who cares if they know my opinion? Who cares if they know how angry I am Paul says, leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God and heap coals. So, Ventura, what are the responses to all of these things? I would say the responses are, first, like-mindedness for God's glory. That means we need to get back to God's glory again. If you've been out of the word and out of prayer, you need to re-engage. Re-engage with God like-mindedness with one another. We need to re-engage in different ways with each other, whether it's a phone call, video. But you know, what we tend to do is we go to the most easy type of communication, which can also be the most dangerous one, which I'm referring to Facebook and Twitter. But we need to engage each other, talk to each other. And then we need to engage with the world in ways that magnify and glorify our God. Engage, engage, engage so that the glory of God might be seen and that people might look even upon venture and say, whoa, the unity there is different. It's sacrificial. And we can say, yeah, because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your power, your grace, your mercy. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church family, help to grow us, strengthen us and lord i pray that we wouldn't become nebulous in our beliefs as a result of a sermon like this but instead that we would be strengthened all the more in our beliefs of your glory in christ by the power of the spirit and that we would also become more strengthened in these other beliefs as we are patient with one another as we are gracious towards one another and lord i also pray that you would help us in our testimony with the world the world might see that we are most concerned for their souls, and that they might rejoice and glory in God as well. And it's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. So hear these words as we close this time. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen.